0: Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you give us your word, how thankful we are that your word is understandable, and while we can agree with Peter that there are some things that are harder to understand, yet we also look at what you tell us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that says that there are certain things that you do not reveal, those secret things of God, and those are only for you, but those things that are revealed are for us to understand, and so we pray. That through the illumination of your Holy Spirit, we will continue to learn more about who you are and what it is that you're doing for us in Jesus Christ, and how we can best respond in gratitude and in love. Help us to do that as we continue studying the Catechism, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, before we get started with the Catechism class, and of course, that's what we're going back to today, uh, we're going to be looking at question 21. I'm going to invite you, I know you all copy, uh, carry copy... Uh, little pocket copies of the catechism, right? Uh, just like your, you know, your wallet, your credit card, your catechism. Pretty sure that if I checked, you'd all have one. But just in case, we also have the um, Trinity hymnal in your seats, and it's around page 870-ish. You'll find it there. But before we jump into question 21, you know, I, 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 um, I'm always kind of looking at certain things and thinking, boy, this would be good to. To teach on this or that or the other, you know, just as I go through the week. But sometimes I run ag- across these little topics and they're like not enough to fill in a class. And so <clears throat> they just kind of get put in a, in a idea drawer in the head, in my brain and never kind of get brought out. So I finally decided that as uh, we come to these little nuggets of information that might be worth uh, passing on, that maybe what I'll do is I'll take two or three minutes in a class like this one and just bring up some of these things that have nothing to do with the subject matter of the day but just to say look this might be something for you to consider and just this past week we had a lot of discussion about certain things that had to do with with the roles of men and women Uh, and so that just reminds me of something that I've been asked in the past Uh, I've been asked why do you insist that we use the word sex and not gender so let me take all of two minutes to explain that and um, if it's something that you know we need to get more into then then we'll schedule a whole Sunday school class for it but for now I just want to kind of go into that um, some of you especially those who are uh, let's say older than 30 years of age might remember um, or maybe maybe we have to go up to 40 because our educational system is not doing too hot but okay you'll know that there are men and women and What's known as sex is designated as male and female. That's that word, sex. And it's a biological thing, right? You don't uh, assign your sex to you. You're born with a biological sex. And we don't have a mixed audience here of little ones anyway, so there are I'll put it without getting too graphic and there are body parts that are assigned, that that are corresponding to that and and believe it or not you don't need a biologist to tell which is which some of you will understand that reference the word gender until just a few years ago was a sign, was was a term that was used only in reference to anybody know yep grammar Let's put this up here. Biology. Grammar. Oops. That's a very bad G. And you had masculine words. Feminine words. Notice they're not male words. They're not female words. They're masculine. They're feminine. And there was another category. You all remember? Neuter and these were assigned they are artificial they're not real it's a convention it's a convention of language just like periods and uh, did i lose the mic it got really low there oh you lowered it okay uh just like um periods and commas and col i mean who says that colons and semicolons get used the way they do we do we assign it there's nothing inherent in the universe that says that a period serves as the end of a sentence right that's something that we assigned to it and so we assign masculine feminine and neuter to words we do not assign male and female that is something that is driven by our biology by your x chromosomes and y chromosomes and so on the point is that there has been a culture war going on amongst many in which they've begun to use this word to refer to this, so that you begin to sit there, and for a while, the whole trans movement was willing to say, I'm a biological male, but I choose to identify as a female, my gender. They wouldn't use the word feminine, but they say, my, I, my gender is female, even though I may be biological male. They were still recognizing that there was a distinction. You are what you are physically, but then you have this, this feeling of what you want to be. And now, that has dropped out, And there's the idea that when you magically claim that you have a particular gender or something, like I'm now female, then I can have the things that happen to females, you know. And I won't get into all those details here. That they literally will happen to me. So you know, if I identify as a dolphin, you know, or or dolphin, you know, still breathes air, so I may not be able to. But if I identify now as the other type of dolphin, uh, you know, there's two types. uh, or you know, or a tuna, there, we won't confuse tunas with dolphins, then I should be able to jump into the ocean and breathe water. I mean, really, isn't that logical? Because if, I, if I'm a man, and sorry, I don't want to get graphic, but if I'm a, a man and I identify as a woman, and then I can now have periods, because that's what we're saying, then I should be able to breathe water if I identify as a tuna. I'm waiting to see the first person who tries that. But anyway... This is the reason why I say we should use the words properly. You use the word gender when you're referring to grammar. Certain words are masculine, feminine, neuter. And when we're referring to biological creatures, which we would insist are made by God, ultimately designed by God, than male and female. But it's a very deliberate use of this word because this is a word that we all recognize as assigned. It's a convention. And so if they can get you to think about sex as a convention something that can simply be chosen <laughs> one day we we use periods one day we use commas but one day I'm a male one day I'm a female or whatever else you see how that works so okay micro nugget teaching for the day is there if there's okay I'll take one question and if it's something more than that we'll we'll do this lesson some other time using language is a, is a key way to confuse things and um, yeah and it's working from what you can see it's um, so all right, I'm a little micro nugget teaching for today. Let's go ahead and leave that. But uh, for now, we're going to turn to our catechism, and let's jump into that. So we're back in the catechism again, Westminster Shorter Catechism. You have it in your Trinity Hymnal. You've got your pocket copies, uh, or some of you, uh, those who are closest to God, have it memorized. Um, oh, come on, 100 years ago, kids memorized it. It's not, okay, sorry. Uh, let's go ahead and, because uh, this is a kid's catechism, by the way. Um, it's a larger catechism was meant for adults. but Okay, we are doing question 21, and this is the beginning of a new section. This is a pivot point. Up until now, the catechism has been telling us a little bit about who God is, and then it started talking about us, but it can't talk about us without then pointing out to the fact that we're fallen creatures. It showed us that man was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, that is, without sin and um, uh, uh, in, in the image of God, reflecting his qualities, and then it talked about our sin and our rebellion. It defined what sin was, and it showed us what it is that we've fallen into. And a key thing, the world was not always like this. The suffering and the disasters and all that are part of the fall. It's called the estate of misery. Remember, the word estate in the Catechism is just the condition. modern-day word would be the state without an E, or just the condition of misery in which we live. And so we're living in this, and it's not the way things always were. It is a consequence of our rebellion against God. And the key thing that shows us is that sin is not something into which we occasionally fall into. Like we're steady state people, and then, mm, oh, I sinned, oh, I did misobey. No, sin is our fundamental state at birth. We are, by nature, rebels against God. Something has to change. And so we've been looking at all that state, that condition of misery up until this point. They say up until, it's not like it's been all that much. We're only on question 21 out of 107. So this is the pivot where now it says God did not leave us in that estate of sin and misery, but instead he has provided a redeemer. That's what we looked at the last time. So this time we're going to see who that is. And so I'm going to ask if somebody will please read question 21 and the answer. And then I'm going to give you a whole bunch of scripture passages. So have your Bibles ready to break those out. And uh, let's first get the question. May I have a reader, any volunteer, just jump right in. All right, thank you so much, Julia. There it is. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? This is the most important question that any human being has to answer. Because without the answer to this question, there's no uh, 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 solution for the estate of sin and misery in which we're in. So... Again, let's go ahead and look at carefully at the question. And like all the catechism questions, you'll notice that these guys back in the 1640s, talking about things that we assign, they loved their commas. But the reason they use commas, um, and, and believe it or not, language of that time, you know, some of you probably uh, either grew up or at times have looked at the King James. The King James that you have is not, it's not the King James of 1611. Did you know that? The King James lang- the, the English language changed, and just like it's changing today. So, someone I've got, you know, I've got what God wanted, King James version. Yeah, you've got a sixteen, uh, um, you have a seventeen uh, fifty-eight or possibly seventeen sixty-two version of it. The original King James of sixteen eleven's language is actually in their use of things like commas and so on. It's actually more similar to our use. Interesting. Uh, and you can, by the way, buy those. They're a little harder to find. Um, and the same thing would be the use here. But they're using all these extra commas to, to create clauses. Clauses. And every one of those clauses is a distinct point that we want to uh, take. So it's, it's not that they're just being clumsy with their commas. They're trying to say this is one thought that builds on this thought or modifies the next thought or something of that nature. So notice how he starts. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to start with this extraordinarily important word, which is only. Absolutely. Only is the key word here. Absolutely key. Uh, let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. I was just talking about this with my family. We were just flipping some radial dials, and we came across um, the Catholic channel on Sirius XM, and they were just in the middle of doing the rosary. Uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And we're praying to you, pray for us, and all this. So, anybody have 1 Timothy 2.5? Will somebody read that if you've got it? Like I said, I'm just going to throw this stuff out. You know, in fact, let me throw out a whole bunch of them, and then you grab one, and that way we'll be ready to read. Today we're going to be looking at a whole bunch. We're going to look at 1 Timothy 2.5. I'm going to need somebody to look up John one fourteen. John 1.14. Going to have somebody else look up Romans nine five. And then Hebrews seven twenty four, that should get us started. Romans nine five, Hebrews seven twenty four, John one fourteen, and First Timothy two five. So let's jump in with um, 1 Timothy two five and whoever's got that. Yes, go ahead, Anne, if you would. For there is one Christ Jesus. All right. Uh, oh, I'm sorry that there's right right that's <laughs> that, that'll do though that's good thank you um, I just want to focus on the part that says one mediator between God and man so the only redeemer um, it goes on to say who being the eternal son of God became man who's got John 1 14 okay the word was made flesh so he became a human being uh, and so was, and continues to be, God and man in two distinct natures and one person. Um, who's got Romans nine five? Ooh, ooh, who is the Christ? Uh, uh, belongs the Christ to the patriarchs? You know, to the Israel they have the privilege. Who belongs to Christ? Who is God overall? It's so funny because it's one of those few times when people sit there and say, "Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God." It's nowhere in the Bible. So you take them to nine five, Romans nine five, and there it is, very clear. There's a bunch of other places too, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Our liberal friends, starting in 1946, which is you know now only about 80 years ago, so I mean it's it's or it's been a while. They went ahead and changed that passage, and it says. To them belongs Christ, convention, period. May God, who is over, all be blessed. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. Sorry, it doesn't work. That's the right translation. So he is God and man in two distinct natures. One person, forever and ever. Who's got Hebrews seven twenty four. Yep, there you go. And uh, is that maybe the ESV or the NIV or... So the ESV okay? <laughs> it's perfectly holy. <laughs> the other one was fine too. So um, the ESV reads smooth, more smoothly. And what it actually does in so doing, it kind of occludes the, um, bringing up the words. You can actually change the word order according to the Greek. And, but this man, because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood it's awkward to say it that way but that's actually how the Greek is written and it actually brings out this idea he continues forever there's no end so when the catechism ends with the question forever then now you can see so that's just setting the stage and the catechism is not nuts it actually has a basis for every one of those phrases that we've just looked at but let's go ahead and dive in a little deeper and especially, let's go into that word only. Some of these passages, you may want to write them down. I'm just going to read them to you uh, for the sake of time so that we're, um, uh, we're staying on, t- on track. But this word only, you see all throughout Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 4.10, Matthew 4.10, you remember um, during his temptation, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve or the King James would have liter- literally had said, and him only, uh, him alone or him only, whichever one. But again, that uh, that language. Then Jesus himself during the high priestly prayer, notice both of these are being said by Jesus, that Jesus himself in the high priestly prayer of John 17, verse 3, refers to God as the only true God. And that's not the only place where you can find it, but uh, this, this idea of there is only one God. So, that in and of itself is a point that we've made earlier. We don't need to repeat it, but we start with the importance of there being only one God, just like in the First Timothy 2, 5 passage that we read that said, for there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So we start with that. There is one God, and here are passages that affirm that that is in fact the case. But then we get to John three sixteen, right? We all know that verse. For God... So love the world. Which, by the way, okay, little micro teaching. That comes from the King James, or it, it comes from Elizabethan language because it was also in, in the Geneva Bible. So love the world does not mean God so very much loved the world. Anybody know what it means? Not because. In such a way, it's it's the older use of the word. So we still use it like that sometimes. Now we use "so" as a modifier to mean so much more, but uh, we still what it actually means in this way. Think about it, like I sit there and say to a little boy, "Here's how you tie your shoes, like so." In this way, so it literally said. Now, does God love the world very much? Yes, He does. But the point it's actually saying is not that it's for God. So, in this way, love the world that He gave His one and only Son. And one of these days, we'll finally get translators who are not afraid to change that into modern English, to change the end of Psalm 23. For he dwelt in the house of the Lord. For I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Except it doesn't say that in Hebrew. It says, for I dwell in the house, I will dwell in the house of the Lord for all of my days. And, it, oh, but that doesn't sound like forever. How can I preach that at a funeral? The person's already dead. You've got to say what it says and not what you want to say. And um, I talked to a couple of translators um, who worked on the NIV. And then one of them, I uh, talked to him not too long after that, um, but a couple of years after, who worked on that translation that you had brought that day, Phil, the new living translation. And he was like, yeah, yeah, the NIV was making all the money, so Tyndale had to make money, so they created the Literally, that's why they came up with the NLT. And so they wanted a piece of the pie. And he said, yeah, we just will not touch certain passages because they're so uh, familiar and beloved, even if it's a wrong translation. I'm like, the perfectionist in me says, no. And then when the ESV um, happened, uh, I was taking some doctoral classes in the same building in which the translators were working on the final edits. And so during a break, I went up there to go talk to some of those guys. And sure enough, they were still not changing. Those key passages, yeah. Um, are, did they have that, uh, a so no, I don't know. I, I don't know. In, the the yes, which Bible? Like the oh, good for them. So they were at least they they tr- the, as a note or as the main text. Yeah. Okay. That's it. <laughs> So I'm looking, uh, Margaret Ann and your generation, I'm counting on you guys. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only, and then we're right back to that word, begotten son. By the way, it is begotten. It's not one and only son. It's the only begotten son. We'll talk about that some other time. So the emphasis here then is very clear. There is one God, but there is also one son, and that one son is the only Redeemer. Um, let's go ahead and throw out some, some passages that we can look up. Let's do, can I get somebody to do Acts fourteen uh, sorry Acts four twelve? Acts four twelve, another one to do John fourteen six and then one more, first John two twenty-three. Acts. 4.12, John 14.6, 1 John 2.23. And tell me if somebody, raise your hand if you've got Acts 4.12. Will you go ahead and read that, please? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under God given among men at which we must be saved. Okay, so salvation is inherent only in Jesus. Peter is preaching. John's right with him. And they're preaching and they make this very important point. We, first of all, is the idea, that, uh, the, the, the point, the first point is you need to be saved. Most people recognize there's something wrong with the world. Where the world pushes back is when we come back with the word only. And this is the only way that you can be saved through this Mediator. Uh, who's got John 14:6? Chuck if you would. Jesus said, again, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father the truth. All right, there's so much in that verse. We won't try to unpack it all. I am the way. Now some people will say, "Yes, he is a way." But he doesn't say that. He says he is the way, the truth. He's not just true. He actually defines truth. He's not just alive, he is life. And the first part of John tells us he is the one who gives life because he himself is life. Uh, it's an amazing thing, but no one comes to the Father except through me. If this is true, it changes everything in terms of how we look at, for example, our neighbors next door, right? And uh, Some of you will know that's a mosque next door. Or any other uh, world religion or ideology or philosophy, If this is true, and it is, because it's in Scripture, and God has revealed it, and Jesus himself revealed it, then it's absolutely um, uh, transformative. Uh, Let's combine that with what 1 John 2.23 says. Who's got that? Dennis? All right, this is a test that John repeats actually a number of times throughout the little letter of 1 John. And its implications are vast. What he is saying is, you can go around all day and talk about the Father. But if you don't accept that the Son is who God himself claims he is and who Jesus himself claims for himself, then not only do you not get to the Father, but you don't, you're, even your conception of the Father is flawed. When I do talk with our neighbors next door or with a Jewish friend, Uh, or anyone of that nature, as long as they reject Jesus as he, doesn't mean that they don't believe he existed or whatever, but Jesus as he revealed himself, which is what we're going to look at in just a moment, uh, certainly as the only redeemer of God's elect, they can have no fruition of the Father. They can have no relationship with the Father. They can actually have no understanding of the Father. I didn't ask you guys to look at it, but uh, John chapter 1, verse 18 Maybe that's one we can look at, but it says, um, well, actually, let's ask somebody to read it instead of my trying to uh, do it from memory. There should be something like no one has ever seen God. Go ahead. All right, no one has ever seen God, but the only God, he who is at the Father's side or in the Father's bosom, he has made him known. Some translations clarify that because n- they didn't just invent it. There's actually some manuscripts. Um, Scott, I'm going to imagine that you've got uh, King James or New King James. Does that say, uh, If you can look up um, uh, John 1.18. Uh, I bet you it, it, it uses that there's a, a lesser number of manuscripts but still enough of them that some folks think that that's the original reading that says uh, no one has ever seen God, but God the only Son. Or some will say the only Son of God, but that is trans, uh, translation. Go ahead. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared Okay, the only begotten Son. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how many manuscripts have that. That's a little... Further away. But it does say, you know, God the only Son, or God the, in this case, only begotten Son. The point is, it's very clear it's talking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, uh, even before he became a man, which we'll talk about in a moment. Jesus already existed, not as Jesus the man, but as God the Son. And only he has revealed him. And when he tells um, Philip and Thomas at the very end, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Uh, This idea that Jesus is the ultimate uh, revelation of God. He's the pinnacle of revelation. In other words, Jesus doesn't bring more. Jesus is not just the final word in the sense that time, he's the last prophet to come. No, he is the pinnacle in the sense that everything that you need to know about God is in Jesus. Does that make sense? Because if you look at it that way, it's transformative, I've been to a lot of evangelical churches and you've heard me say this uh, again and again over the last 25 years. We see a drop even in the name, uh, even the use of the name Jesus in evangelical services. You can look at a lot of music and it's all about God. I went to a service, I won't mention which church, it's a major church here in the uh, Metroplex, you would all recognize it. And um, sat through two other services and in none of them was the name Jesus ever used, except at the end of a prayer. The one prayer in the entire service, which came at the end of the, of the sermon. Um, and, and I mean that even in the songs, maybe you're saying, well, maybe, John, they didn't use the word Jesus. They might have referred to the Lamb of God, or to the Redeemer, or, no, no, no mention. And that's happening more and more and more. Phil? That is a great question. Phil, if you couldn't hear him saying, when we focus on God, do we focus on Jesus or on the Father? It's very interesting because the Father constantly, uh, Jesus is finally saying, we come to the Father. And yet everything in Scripture, okay, John chapter 11, um, we come off the mountain and get the, the transfiguration, right, on the mountain. Um, you get the... Uh, uh, Peter and John are there, and uh, Elijah and Moses show up and all this other stuff, and the voice comes from heaven, and it says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, or hear him. The, the language is um, doesn't come out in English, but it's you could actually w- uh, add the word only. It's written in such a way that it means... This is the one. This, not other ones. This is the one to whom you listen. By the way, when you are saved by Jesus, you just have to know this. This is a beautiful thing. Because we have his righteousness. And our own dirty rags are lifted and taken off of us, as Zechariah 3 metaphorically puts it. And we have the righteousness of Christ, those robes laid on us, as it were, those white robes. When the Father looks at you, and you need to know this so that you can deal with those moments when you wonder... God, do you care about me? He says the same thing about you as he says of his son. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And it's not because of anything you've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. But that's the reality. It changes everything. So what we have here then to answer Phil's question is where should our focus be? Yes, you can certainly talk about the Father, but it always must be done through the mediation of the Son. So in reality, everything is focused on Jesus. In the book of Revelation, heaven and earth come come together, right? We talk about, oh, I'm on earth now, and I die, and I go to heaven, and too many in the evangelical world, that's our, that's our end game, right? Oh, I'm going to be in heaven flitting around with my little cherub wings and, you know, nonsense, right? You know, all, nonsense, right? all this. Kind of nonsense. Never do you see ever. There's some talk about your soul going to heaven, but the theologians call it the intermediate state for a good reason. Never in scripture do you see that put as the hope of Christians. And it really kind of you know when I hear somebody, I get it when some folks sometimes do it because you're being you're a lot of folks now are being taught poorly. But when I hear a pastor get up there in a sermon and say that's not Aunt Matilda. Aunt Matilda's not here anymore. Aunt Matilda's in heaven in her new body dancing before Jesus. Did I miss the resurrection? That's her body, which is why we bury the dead. And don't cremate them. You know, the, if you ended up cremating somebody, I'm not saying, oh, have you committed a sin? Historically, pagans cremated their bodies because they said, it's an empty shell. It's, it's, it's the dualism of Plato. It's an empty shell. It doesn't matter. It's actually evil. Get rid of it. The only part that's good is the soul, and that's gone to Valhalla or wherever, you know, it goes off to. Christians said, no, the body, God made us body and soul. The body has value. That body will be raised. Therefore, we bury it out of respect. If you cremate a grandma, please don't sit there and say, oh, Pastor John said, you know, that's fine. I'm just saying that's historically why those things happen. So that body is still there. That very body will be the one that's raised. Oh, what if it decomposes? What if it got, you know, vaporized in 9-11? Okay, the God who made all things out of nothing can handle that. I'm not going to worry about those kind of details, but I know he's going to raise that body, just like the body you have now is not the same body you had seven years ago because all the molecules change and everything else. So God can handle that. He can whip it up, and it'll be your body resurrected. The point simply being is that is where our hope is. It comes in the resurrection. And on the Revelation says on that day, heaven and earth come together. How do they come together in the book of Revelation? What is it that's going to come down? What I, heard? I heard a couple. Heaven, heaven's coming down, yes, but in the person of? Yes, what makes heaven or earth heaven is that Jesus is going to be amongst us. God will be amongst us. I think we have a tendency to just downplay Jesus. We say he's God, but in in reality, we just act like he's the helper. Like he's, and and I hate to say it, in the whole Roman Catholic system, if you came out of that, I'm sorry to step on your toes, but in the whole Roman Catholic system, Jesus is like this really powerful superhero. And increasingly in evangelicalism, we're, we're portraying him as such. The other day on the radio, Gray and I were just listening, we decided to put on the Christian music station, and every song was about Jesus, my superhero who supercharges me to then be good. I not how they said it exactly, but that's in essence what it was saying. So Jesus just becomes a superhuman who is the one who's my power pack, right? You all have batteries on your phones, but you know, now they sell these little power packs that you attach that give you that extra. So that's where you, Jesus just comes there and gives me that, little bat, that, that, that uh, extra power to do what I need to do. That's not how the scripture portrays him. He is God in our midst. And everything that you need to know about God Who he is, his character, and everything you need to know about God and what he's done is in Jesus. And if that's true, and it is, it's revolutionary. It's why in our sermons, now if if you're new to this, um, next week, Newcomer's class, uh, we're going to be talking about this. Why do we focus and why do we insist that every sermon be about Christ and what he's done? Instead of just being a be good sermon, it's because you can't see any and do any of those things outside of him. He is absolutely central. Is that all good? I mean, we're tracking on that? Okay, questions before we move on? I can go on and on about that. Lang? Yeah, and again, uh, I don't think it's wrong to pray to God. I'm not trying to say that that's not the case. Uh, In fact, he gives us that as a model prayer, so I think that's wholly appropriate to pray to the Father in that regard. What I'm saying is that even our approach to the Father, who loves us and cares for us and provides for us and does all those things, is done through the mediation of Jesus. And that's why, you know, the word amen, by the way, is not like a signal. Okay, any, any of you, like, learn in programming that you would use? Like, there's a word in programming, coding, whatever it's called nowadays, right, that ends a line, you know, and it shows and tells the computer that's the end of this instruction and now there's a the next one and that kind of stuff. Or, you know, in the old days, a telegram. You would have stop, you know, send $10, Dad, stop. College is expensive, stop. You know, that was meant to say this is the end, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Because they didn't have periods. So you couldn't, didn't have a, Morse code didn't have a period, so they would use the word stop. So if you wanted to tell somebody, hey, stop, stop, you'd have to do that. Okay, sorry amen amen is not a stop at the end okay I know sometimes we use it magically like oh I couldn't end that prayer unless I say amen amen is actually supposed to be what the people who are listening respond just it just basically says you know we're with you we agree right the other word that we use at the end in the name of the Lord Jesus we tend to use again it's almost like a magical construct you're just supposed to say it you've got to put it in there you got to say in the name of Jesus you can use it at the beginning. You can say, Lord, we come to you through Christ because that's recognizing his mediation. And what you're really saying in that prayer is, Lord, I'm not coming to you and saying, hey, look 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 at me, Lord. Um, I've been pretty good this week. I've said uh, these certain, you know, Hail Marys. I've also done certain things. So now you should hear me. And I think a lot of evangelicals will sit there and say, well, it's easy to pick on the Catholics. But we do the same thing. We approach God when we think that we're good enough to approach God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever sinned? And, yes, yes, we all <laughs> hey, I was going to say and. Have you ever sinned and then conviction of sin comes. You realize, oh. And you finally realize, mm-hmm. do you stop right there in the moment and say, Lord, I repent? Or do you like wait a few days because you feel dirty? And then you come to him Today's Sunday, so you know, if you did this on Thursday, you might come to him on Tuesday. And after, so, I've been to church, I've been all prayed up and all that. What you're really doing when you're doing that is you're saying, I'm gonna wait till I'm good enough, till I've, I have a little bit of a good track record again. Do you see how Roman Catholic that is? How, or really, we should say how performative that is. We fall right back into those same patterns. But when you have that conviction of sin you can immediately say Lord forgive me I repent in the name of Jesus because you're recognizing the reason you're going to listen to my plea for mercy is not because I've been you know in in the other pattern you're basically saying I know I messed up on Thursday but it's Sunday now and I've been good since then you're really asking to say look at my own record it's not perfect but it's good enough I mean certainly not like that guy You can see where the Pharisees get their thing. In the name of Jesus, it's more than just a little tag. It basically is saying, I've got nothing to bring. I am nothing. I bring nothing. But I recognize that it comes wholly and fully, uh, or I come wholly and fully reliant on the goodness of Christ. So to answer that question, ultimately, we want to be able to say, uh, in all our prayers or whatever, Everything is done through the mediation of Jesus, and that does transform everything. It transforms our prayer life. It transforms the way we think. Um, The second commandment that says that we're not supposed to be making images, uh, and some say, well, it's okay to have an image of Jesus because he was a man. You're not making an image of God. Why have Reformed traditionally uh, pushed back against that? Because everything about Jesus was a revelation. Notice what I'm saying. We have his words recorded because God has chosen to preserve that aspect of his... Re- and there, we know there's many other things. John even says at the end of the Gospel of John that had he recorded everything that Jesus had said, it would, you know, he uses a metaphor, you know, or, or hyperbole. He says not even the world can contain all the books that it would contain it. So uh, we know that Jesus said more. So we got that word. Jesus speaks. It is God himself speaking. It is revelation and, and, um, and so therefore reveals God. But also the things that he did, isn't that true? The things that he did reveals the character of God, doesn't it? So it tells us that he was weary and tired and yet the masses came to him with all their poor and their sick and their, you know, their um, uh, ill, the ones who were, um, uh, also had demons and so on. And he had compassion on the crowds and he stuck it out. It tells you something about him. Philippians 2 makes it explicit, he always puts the interests of others above his own. Not sometimes, not often, always. Puts the interests of others above his own, and so he's willing to sit there and say, I'm, I'm tired, and so on, but I'm here to serve you. So the actions that he does reveal. And that means, I'm still talking about the image of God and why we don't uh, emphasize uh, even pictures of Jesus. That means that everything that he did, his motions said something and today we, we, we understand that that body language from, let's just take body language as one example body language conveys a lot doesn't it It communicates uh, as much as um, um, uh, written language and we all know that because when we're texting we fill it with emojis and all this other stuff to try I, I read a whole article two weeks ago that said that the problem with periods now everybody puts exclamation points on, on text because if it does, doesn't it? you sound angry I was like what I don't I use periods all the time. And it's saying, yeah, now everything has to be, yeah, I'll meet you at the park. Because if you say, I'll meet you at the park, it's like, so why? Because we don't have context. We don't have So when I'm talking to you, I can see your language. I can see your inflection of voice. All those different things, right? They say something. They reveal your character and your intent. Now that we get that, we understand that Jesus how he even said some of the things that he said and the movements that he made. You know, we have that penetrating look when, uh, when uh, Peter betrays him and the third time the rooster crows. And in these chilling words, Jesus looked at him. He wasn't far away. He's like in the courtyard and Jesus is being led out of the high priest's home and as they're leading him out, the rooster crows and Jesus turns and just, can you imagine that penetrating look? You've all had your mom look at you that way. But now, this is God. The point is, every one of his movements, every, just the way he turned, when he, we see him going, uh, we see him with our mind's eye, which is how God intended for it to be. But we see him going to that woman who had sinned, who was an adulterer, who was caught in the act of adultery. And yet he goes to her with that compassion of the creator who loves his creation so much that he's going to die to redeem his people. We don't know what that looked like, and so trying to portray that on film or whatever means we can get that just as wrong as his words. You see? And that makes sense when we understand that every part of who he was and his actions and his facial expressions and the tone of his voice all are revelation. And the minute you put it in a drawing, you essentially are saying, I know what that was. And since it was not revealed, you are speculating. That's why we do what we do. See, that we're not crazy. Okay. Um, our time is almost up, and we've only gotten to the first third <laughs> of this question. We're going to stop on one thing, so let's go back to only. Let's go back to only. So if only is truly uh, what Scripture teaches, and it does, and we've already seen that again and again. He is the only Redeemer. He is, there's only one God. There is only one Son, and he is the only Redeemer. And next week, what we'll do is we'll begin to take apart uh, what it, what does it mean that he is both God and man. And we've already seen. I mean, quickly we looked at those those passages that show that he is God Romans nine five uh, that he is a man John one fourteen uh, that he continues forever Hebrews what was it uh, seven twenty four uh, and of course that he is only one mediator First Timothy two five uh, so we've seen that but. What we're seeing more and more, starting in the, um, well, about 100 years ago now, uh, 1920s, we started with the ecumenical movement. And some of you sit there and say, ooh, ecumenical, bad word. It's not really a bad word at all. Uh, properly done, it's a great word. Uh, back in 2000, uh, right before I found out that uh, Mary Jo was pregnant with Gray. In fact, we found out while we were there. It's kind of Interesting. Uh, I got to participate. I was the um, representative for, I guess you can call it conservative Presbyterian churches because uh, was, I was PCA at the time, but that, I was the only PCA, OPC, you know, URC person there at all. Uh, but there was an international conference for um, looking at the Nicene Creed and finding what do we have in common when we all can say, this is, you know, this is the Nicene Creed and this is, these are the points and we can all get behind it. So there was, you know, folks from Lutheran and, and uh, Anglican, and um, uh, some liberal pr- uh, Presbyterians. Um, uh, there are uh, uh, some or- Orthodox guys there, you know, just uh, this whole big uh, uh, shebang. And, the, but these were all believing uh, Lutheran. I don't know the, about the PCUSA guys, but I'm gonna give them benefit of the doubt, and, uh, you know, all that other stuff. And um, And in the ecumenical movement of today, that you sometimes you know, use as a dirty word, but they basically said the way that we all come together is by getting rid of all our differences and trying to find what is common. But good ecumenism is where we sit there and say, hey, look, you bring, you bring your Lutheranism because you're, you're convinced of that. You, you bring all that. And you bring your Anglicanism because you're convinced of that. And you bring you know, your Presbyterianism, your Reformism, because you're convinced of that. And yet there's still so much that we have that's absolutely rock solid that we can come together. C.S. Lewis called that mere Christianity. And I think that was actually the byline of the, uh, the conference. So there is good ecumenism, but what's happened since the 20s is the other kind of ecumenism that started not just amongst Christians, but then the one that now wants to reach out to all the world religions. And the idea is we don't go anymore to speak, but we to listen. Right? I mean, you heard that? And what happens when we listen to our Muslim neighbors? And then we listen to our Buddhist friends. And then we listen to our pagan witchcraft, Wiccan folk. We're basically saying, you have some truth that maybe we haven't gotten. And so you give me some of that. And maybe we can teach you something. And we all have something to offer. And then we all just kind of put it all together and blend it and, and we, c- we get something new. That something new is never, never ends with Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of God's elect. I'll end with this. Uh, as you know, we've done a number of things with our friends in the mosque next door. They are friends, not brothers. Um, and um, it was during one of the, uh, the Ramadan dinners in which they had invited us over. And they invite the community when they, you know, they, Ramadan's their big 40-day fast. They're breaking their fast. So, okay, we'll go. You know, we're friends. Uh, it's a social thing. They had folks from all over. So I'm sitting at the table and two of the folks from, there's only one um, uh, uh, synagogue, Jewish synagogue in all of Denton County. and it's here in Flower Mound. So they have uh, Rabbi Dennis and two of his people. The rabbi was in another table, but two of his folks were sitting at my table. I was at that table. We had two folks from uh, the Mormon church that is mm-hmm. down the street and just around the corner. Uh, two guys from one of the Methodist churches in town who are less than, um, well, we'll just leave it at that, less than faithful. And we had some of our Muslim friends, of course, from the mosque, all sitting at the table. And at some point, the conversation turns to, because it always does. Uh, certainly religion, <laughs> certainly And it's going to come down to who? Who's the lightning rod? Always the lightning rod. Jesus. Jesus. I mean, nobody's sitting there and talking about Siddhartha. Okay? Because, you know, Jesus. It all comes down to him. We didn't start there. We started talking about all our similarities and our our differences. But in the end, it boiled down to him. It always does. That's why Jesus is the lightning rod. That's why Jesus is the you've heard me say, he is the most dangerous person you will ever meet. Because the minute you walk into his presence, whether it's through the preaching of the word or the reading of the word, whoever the case may be, he demands that you accept his claims. And at that point, you have to make a choice. You can you can no longer walk away and say, I, I didn't know. You have to sit there and accept him. You know, C.S. Lewis not the first guy who wrote it, but probably the most famous guy who wrote this, this, this idea. You either have to accept what he says or you have to say, well, I kind of like what he says, you know, about being nice to people, not, but I don't accept that he's God. But you can't do that. C.S. Lewis is right. You can't go around do that because how many people do you want to listen to as a good moral teacher who are insane? I'm Napoleon. I'm God. And you don't listen to those people. You just elect them to office. Um... <laughs> But you guys see where I'm getting at, right? You have to, once, you into, you, once you're in his presence, you have to accept him for who he is, or you must reject him. You have to say he's a lunatic, or as uh, C.S. Lewis said, or he's evil. He's just a liar. He knows that he's not God, but he's manipulating you. So you still want to accept that guy as your moral teacher. You see? That's what it comes down to. And that table, all these folks in the end came up against Jesus. And and that included, sadly, the ones who identified as Christians. And they were willing to throw this Jesus under the bus. It always comes down to that. Always. So, the only redeemer of God's elect. Oh, it's 1010. Let's go ahead and quit. Next week, we'll start looking at what it means that he is both God and man. How he can have two natures. We're going to answer some questions. How many, and maybe you can come with uh, your answers next week. How many natures does Jesus have where he said two How many persons is Jesus? How many wills does he have? Ooh, that's exciting stuff that just sends a shiver up your leg. All right, let's pray and get ready for worship. Father in heaven, we thank you that as we come to you, we do come, not in our own righteousness, not in our own goodness, for we have none. Uh, We don't come because we've been good this week. Uh, If we are good, we do it only in response to what you have already done for us in Christ. We come in gratitude for what you've done out of love for what you have done. But we come, Father, not in our own merit, but in the merit of Jesus. So yes, we do pray in the name of Jesus, the name representing his very character and who he is. And we thank you, Father, that that means we have access to you. As Romans 5 says, that because we are justified, we now have access to God anytime, place, anywhere. It does not depend on your mood. It does not depend on how good or bad we are. It depends wholly upon Jesus, his goodness, and his righteousness, and because of that, Uh, We can come and we can uh, um, uh, unburden our our souls. We can confess our sin and we know that you will receive us and hear us with compassion. That same compassion that you showed to that woman in uh, John chapter 8, you show even to us. And so we come, Father, in the name of Jesus, trusting in his righteousness, asking that you would help us to better understand the centrality of Christ and why it is that we insist um, that Jesus has to be at the center uh, of everything that we do in worship and in preaching and in our lives, in how we uh, treat one another and how we forgive one another, how we care for one another. Help us that for, help for that to become a growing reality in the midst of these, your people. May it not simply be uh, um, a Sunday school truth that we all walk on here saying, wow, I've learned more, but may it transform the way we live uh, for your glory. And we pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus, amen.